We have been working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, the Christians in the modern or in the Roman colony of Philippi. And last week we looked at verses 3 through 11 and we learned how God gave Paul joy and thankfulness when he remembered those Christians in Philippi because they were, and the key phrase that we had last week was they were partners in the gospel. That's verse 5. That was the key phrase of our consideration last week. What does it mean to be partners in the gospel? How can we be partners in the gospel? And then discovering that being partners in the gospel is one of God's ordained means of joy for his people. This week, we will be in the same unit of scripture, but we'll be looking at the other key theme found in it, and that's the theme of love in relationship to being partners in the gospel. And all in all, I believe that this scripture will help us better live out our mission as a church family. If you've forgotten or if you're not aware of what our mission statement of this church family reads, it reads this. We exist to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. That is why we exist as a church. And this passage ties wonderfully in with that mission. Look at the end of verse 11 of Philippians 1. You know, Notice there at the end of verse 11, it says, All of this is headed towards this wonderful destination, to the glory and praise of God. And this is why we exist, church, to the glory and praise of God. And we aim to do that by making disciples through the gospel of grace, through the good news of Jesus. So that's where this text eventually takes us. Uh, I'm going to read aloud verses 3 through 11. I'd invite you just to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible or if a Bible is intimidating, we have it here on screen for you to be able to follow along as well. Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, help us. We bow before you, confessing our need for your spirit and your word to do a work in our hearts. You have called us to yourself in Jesus, and you've called us to be a people of faith. Lord, we pray that you would build us now in faith. Lord, we confess, we believe, but help our unbelief. And so we pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and to hear your word and to embrace it as a path of joy that we would trust that you are always working for our joy, that you are for us, you intercede for us. God, we look forward to that day of Christ when we will see you face to face. And so we ask that you would use this time together in your word to prepare us better for that day of days. If there are any here who do not know you as Savior, we pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself, that you would use us 
to point them to Christ. And Lord, that they would repent and believe and taste and see of your goodness. And Lord, for those of us who do know you as Savior, we pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation in some measure, that we would be winsome witnesses in the world. So Lord, feed us from your word, shape us, challenge us, convict us. We thank you for this time together in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, this sermon this morning, we're going to organize into two sections. And this is standing on the shoulders of the sermon from last week. So if you weren't with us last week or if you missed that, I'm sorry that you're at a bit of a disadvantage. Uh, But this sermon is standing on the shoulders of last week because it's all in the same unit of Scripture. We're just unfolding another section of what we had with us last week. We're going to organize this into two sections, and both of them revolve around this main idea of love. And they, they kind of work together in kind of, a, kind of a cycle. The first is going to be gospel partnership fuels Christian love. And the second one is gospel partnership requires Christian love. And I know that there might be a little bit of a paradox there. If it fuels it, how can it require it? But I think we'll see some of the providence of God, the mystery and the, and the wisdom of God in what he has for his people. Gospel partnership fuels Christian love. The idea of love first shows up in this passage. Well, I guess you could say it in the sense of just how thankful and joyful Paul is as he thinks about these Christians and as he writes them. He's full of thanksgiving and joy for them. But in verses 7 and 8 is really where you see it's just chock full of emotion. Look at it. Paul is defending how deeply he feels for these Christians, his love and affection for these people. It's intense. And by the way, Paul is not a sissy. He's not just kind of a sentimental fluff. I mean, this is the guy that was beaten, that was shipwrecked, that had been through hard, difficult things. This was, Paul was a man's man in that sense. So he's not just a fluff ball out there just talking about all this kind of mushy-gushy sentimentalism. He is genuinely has heart full of affection for these people. And it's, I don't know, it's almost as if he's a bit embarrassed by it. Not really. But he's defending his reasons why he is so affectionate for these people in verses 7 and 8. It's like in verse 8, he's taking an oath on the witness stand, testifying for how deeply he feels and how he yearns for them all. You see it there in verse 8? Well, yearns for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why does he have such love for these Christians? Well, if you'll remember from last week, we looked at Paul's given the reason is because of their partnership in the gospel, verse 5. These Christians began to serve as partners in the gospel with him from the first day that they became followers of Jesus. And if you don't remember those occasions that we went through uh, last week, you can uh, mark a note down to read through Acts 16, because that's the historical record by Luke of the beginnings of the church in Philippi. And how Lydia came to faith in Christ, and she immediately got engaged as a partner in the gospel. And the jailer, uh, and when he came to faith in Christ, immediately he brings them into his home, bathes their wounds, and gets engaged with them, brings them up into his house, again, as a partner in the gospel. So in verses 7 and 8, they're full of emotion, admissions of his love for these people because of their partnership in the gospel. So this is why we can say then from this text that gospel partnership fuels Christian love. It is one of the means that God intends to use in a church family to fuel our love for one another. Now take a look at the verse at the end of verse 8 where he talks about he loves them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, we understand that getting busy together as the people of God involved in partnership in the gospel of God is one of the means that God intends to fuel our love for each other. But you might object to that and say, well, hang on now. 
Is that mean then that Christians earn love from one another based upon our actions of service with one another? Does that make sense? If partnership in the gospel is what feels love, then are we kind of behaving in a certain way to earn love from one another? And the answer to that is no. That is why I believe Paul anchors his affection for these Christians. He says, hey, I love you all because of your partnership in the gospel. It fills my heart with joy and thankfulness every time I remember you and I'm praying for you. But he's very careful to anchor his love for them, not only in their partnership in the gospel, but ultimately in the cause of their partnership in the gospel, the affection that they have in Christ. So Paul tells them that he loves them for their partnership, yes, but the reason that they're partners in the gospel at all is because of the affection of Jesus Christ. And this reminds us as Christians of the central message of who we are as Christians, of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, this is what makes us Christians, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes us Christians is not coming into a church and singing songs and doing certain behaviors. That isn't what makes us a Christian. What makes us a Christian is our shared faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is what Paul is reminding them of when he says the affection of Christ Jesus. Christians make such a big deal about the love of God, and it's for good reason. In fact, probably the most popular verse in the Bible. What, what would you guess is, in your estimation, the most popular verse in the Bible? Any, any guesses? John 3.16, right? What is that all about? It's about Jesus, right? God sending Jesus. Why? Because of his love, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to what? To be the Savior of the world. And the Bible teaches that every person is under the threat of perishing. I know that's an old word, right? perishing, peril, but it really, the Bible simply teaches that we are under a death sentence from God for our acts of rebellious treason against him. Well, what are we to do? How are you going to evade that type of death sentence? That, your scriptures call it condemnation. Well, you can't work yourself out of that. You can't get yourself out of that predicament, but Jesus can. And that's exactly what he did. He came to earth, which is what we are focusing on in the incarnation in Christmas season, the first coming of of Christ to be the savior of the world. And we look forward to the second coming of Christ, that day of Christ that Paul writes about here in Philippians 1. Well, that's why Christ came. He lived a perfect life, died a death he didn't deserve. He was condemned so you don't have to. And he faced God's righteous wrath for sins he did not commit so that everyone who turns from their rebellious acts from against God and embraces Christ as Lord and Savior are what the Bible calls saved. That's what that means. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what is this conversation about being saved? What does, all that, what does that have to do with, with life? That's what it means. It means you're saved from the condemnation and your guilt of sin under a righteous and holy God for your rebellious acts against him. And we are all underneath that condemnation. And yet we have all been offered new life and forgiveness in Christ. That's the good news of Christianity. That's what we celebrate as Christians. That's why we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship and adore Christ. He is the hope for the world. That's the good news. And that's the affection of Christ Jesus that Paul is speaking about. This this world-changing, life-altering encounter with God's love through Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the affection of Christ. A question for us is, have you experienced that love? Have you experienced God's saving love in your life? Have you been forgiven of your sin? This is the fountainhead of our love for one another. 
and that Paul is making sure that his readers understand that. Verse 8, it's not a behavior-based love that he has for them. Verse 8, it's anchored and rooted in what? The affection of the love that he has from the Father. This, by the way, this is a central theme throughout really the whole New Testament, this idea of God's love to us, enabling our love towards one another. The Apostle John records it this way in his letter. He says in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. So we will never, you will never be able to love others the way you must until you have experienced and embraced God's love for you. We love because he first loved us. If, any, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those are tied very closely, but understand one precedes the other. Receiving and understanding God's love for us precedes our ability then to love others. So as we consider what Paul writes here, we learn that partnership in the gospel is a source. It is a cause of love for these Christians. Gospel partnership fuels Christian love. This means then, or in other words, think of it this way. If you want to have a vibrant love for your church family, get busy together as partners in the gospel. That's what you see happening here in Philippians. I mean, Paul is writing to them. He's full of joy and thankfulness for them. His heart is full of affection for them. He's defending his heart of affection for them in the affection of Christ, all because of the partnership in the gospel that he experienced with them from the first day until now. Give together. Serve together. Pray together. Engage the community with the hope of the gospel of Jesus together. You get the idea, right? As we are partners together in the gospel, God intends to use that partnership in the gospel to fuel our love for one another as we engage as partners in the gospel. It will produce an earnest love in us for one another as we are partners in the gospel. And by the way, we're partners in the gospel because we have received God's love to us in Christ. So why does a Christian's love for each other matter so much? Um, Again, if you're not a Christian, you are probably aware that Christians talk about love a lot. I mean, here we are, right? Talking about love a lot. We sing about God's love. We talk about love. We're supposed to be a people of love. And by the way, if the Christian church has let you down in that area, I'm sorry about that. But we are supposed to be a people of love. Why? I mean, where does that come from? I mean, was there like some church council, like in the 300s, that just decided, you know, of all the things we can be known for, let's, yeah, let's do that. All right, and we just kind of all have decided to keep going that way. You ever wondered why? Well, the answer to that is found in the words of Jesus, recorded for us by the Apostle John in his gospel in John 13. These are the words of Christ. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, now we need to define that love, right? Our world calls all sorts of things love. Well, Jesus defines it just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So we're talking about a sacrificial, sometimes painful, costly love. But here's where it all pivots, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you agree with that? meaning of everything else that we could be known for as God's people. This 
is that chief, preeminent, distinguishing mark of who we are as God's people. According to Jesus, we could call ourselves, we're followers of him, but if we are absent of love, then we're not really following him, are we? So a question is, how is your love doing today? How is your love doing today? Is it growing cold? Has it already grown cold? That can happen from time to time. It does. And that brings us to a small feature of something else I think happening in this text. And notice in verses 3 through 11, just try to glance through and find, count, how many times Paul repeats the word all. See if you can find them. I counted six times where he repeats the word all, which, by the way, I don't believe is an accident. I think there is a powerful message of love in that repetition. And let me, let me just put it in context then. I believe that Paul is directly combating any notion of favoritism that he might have towards that church family because of whatever controversies might have been going on within that church family. This is the letter that Paul writes to them and tells them to be in one spirit, to be like-minded, and to agree with one another. That, those are instructions and warnings and cautions in this letter to the Philippians. He warns them away from selfish ambition, which, by the way, is the opposite of Christian love. Chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 27. In fact, he calls out two people by name and exhorts them to agree in the Lord. So maybe the readers were thinking, ah, I wonder if it's Judea or Syntyche that he's against or for. But lest anyone think Paul's love doesn't extend to them all or only to some, he fills his opening remarks about his prayer, joy, and love for all, all, all of them. And I bring that up for this case. Christians, there are going to be some in our church family that are easier for you to love than others. That's just the nature of human nature, right? That's just, we're different, right? And there's a beauty in that diversity. But at the same time, we've been called to love one another. And I love how Paul is just showing these Christians again and again how he loves all of them. He prays for all of them. He thinks of all of them. He has joy for all of them. And that's the beauty that God has intended for us as well. So let me ask you again, how is your love doing? Does it need help? All of us will eventually find ourselves in that predicament from time to time where our love needs help. It'll happen. What are we to do? The answer to that is found in verses 9 through 11. Because gospel partnership requires Christian love, here's what we're to do. Pray. Pray. Do you see verses 9 through 11? Now we're finally to the content of his prayer. He talks about his prayer back in verse 3 and 4. He's thankful, verse 4. He's praying for them. But we don't know what he prays for yet. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7 or 8. We don't know what he's praying for yet. Finally, in verse 9 through 11, we have the content of his prayer. And his prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's a bit of a circular path here that we have in this text. Gospel partnership fuels Christian love. Love is a requirement for gospel partnership. And gospel partnership fuels Christian love, which then enables our gospel partnership, which fuels Christian love. Do you see how that kind of flows around? How God intends for that effect to have in a church family? And of course, all of that is based on the affection of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at Paul's prayer here in verses 9 through 11. Is this a prayer for them to abound more and more in love for God? 
Or is it a prayer for their love to abound more and more for each other? Well, the answer to that is yes. But I think there's an emphasis on one over the other. And here's the reason why. I believe the primary emphasis in this prayer is for their love to abound for each other because this prayer flows out of the context of his admission and defense of his own love for them. And I believe what he's doing is he's using his love for them as a model to inspire and encourage their own love for one another to abound. In fact, later on in chapter 4, he tells them to imitate him. And I think he's holding out his love for them as an inspiration, as a model for their own love for one another. So he's praying then that their love for one another would abound. Now, of course, like we just talked about, our love for others is because of God's love for us. So if you want a love for others flourishing, you need to have a love for God flourishing. Does that make sense? Think of it this way. I know this may sound um, childish, but uh, like when our kids were little, and we use this from time to time even now, but we'll ask them, right, how, how's your love tank? Is your love tank full? Well, Christian, your love tank needs to be full from God's love so that you can then love others. I want to make sure that's very clear. But having understood that, Paul is praying then that their love for one another would abound. This text teaches that our love for others should not be static. Christian love, in God's mind, for his people, is not a destination you arrive at and you've accomplished it, you've kind of gotten to the love place and you're good. He wants it to abound. These words are, are, are having an effect of excess, a lot. Kind of like you're filling up a glass and it abounds. How do you know it abounds? When the water starts flowing out over the top. That's the idea here that Paul has in mind. It's not like we arrive at a destination of love and then we're okay. No, our love needs to abound. Why? Why? Well, I think Paul, well, uh, there's probably numerous reasons why. Uh, for instance, we have, a, we have a trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and you have the love between Father, Son, and Spirit that's abounding, and we are image bearers of God, right? So our love should, to others should abound as well. I mean, there's probably all sorts of strands that we could draw from that, right? But textually, I think here is one of the reasons why Paul is praying for their love to abound. He knows it needs to abound. I think Paul knows the rough and tumble world that people of God live in. I love the realism he has here. I mean, he knows the hardships and the frustrations and the hurts and the disagreements that will inevitably be faced as we are partners in the gospel together. And I think the only way to overcome those threats is to have an abounding or a growing love. It's the only way. It's the only way to fuel our gospel partnership, which will strengthen our love for one another, which fuels our gospel partnership, right? You get that? So in other words, you won't be able to partner in the gospel as God wants you to if your love isn't abounding more and more for your partners in the gospel. Does that make sense? So again, how's your love doing? Is your love abounding more and more for your partners in the gospel? Based on this text, that's something we should pray for. We should pray for this. So here's my request of all of us as a church family. This week, pray for this. You know, if you don't know how to pray, you're like, man, I... You know, I, I forget everything during my day until I try to pray. Then I remember everything I forgot. You're trying to figure out how you should pray, how to clear your mind and pray about something. Pray this, this week. Would you pray this week? Would you pray for your love to abound more and more? Would you pray for this church family that our love would abound more and more? That is a, that is a good prayer, church. A good prayer. I hope that you will pray that this week. 
Well, Paul's prayer for their love to abound has some specifics attached to it. Do you see them in our text? It's not just generally that their love would abound more and more, but their love would abound more and more, and then it's with knowledge and all discernment. And then that is for a purpose, right? For these intended ends. So that, verse 10, you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. It it just keeps flowing, right? He wants their love to abound with some specifics, to abound with knowledge and all discernment. Let's think of knowledge. Love without knowledge is empty sentimentalism. Okay? It's empty sentimentalism. You could say that you love somebody you've never met, but do you really? In the sense of, do you know them? I mean, how deep can that love be if you don't know them, if all you know is a picture and a name? Now, I know there's spiritual acts, there's spiritual elements going on in our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not discounting that. But love without knowledge is empty sentimentalism. In fact, understand it this way. Would you want to be in a relationship with someone who, didn't, who refused to get to know you, but they assured you they loved you? Eventually, you would say, hmm, this is not compatible. You can't affirm you love me and then refuse to get to know me. We understand, right? To say you love someone means you will lean into, you will want to get to know them. Love without knowledge is empty sentimentalism. Paul wants knowledge to deepen our love. Um, Here's an illustration that came to mind. I I don't know if I got this from something I read years ago or if it just came to me in this moment. So if you've heard this before, just follow along. But imagine that a couple has been married for 35 years. And imagine that they're asked by some newlyweds if they still get the same excitement and thrill when they hold hands like they did when they were first married. And I thought about, should I pick on somebody in the church family who's been married 35 years? I see some husbands shaking their heads like, please don't pick me right now. <laughs> hey, just, just thought experiment, right? 35 years, hey, you get the same thrill when you're with each other's presence and you hold hands. It's so exciting like it was when you were newly, newly wed. And the couple who's been married 35 years would say, no. Now, the newlyweds might say, oh. But that couple who's been married 35 years, if they've... If they have a healthy marriage, they'll be quick to explain this. The knowledge they have of each other after 35 years of marriage and the shared experiences that they have with each other over 35 years of marriage have produced a love so much greater and so much deeper than they could have ever imagined as newlyweds. In other words, the thrill of newlywed love, as great as that is, can't compete with the deep, full knowledge of love that they now share, having been married 35 years. Do we get that? And again, if this illustration hurts you or offends you because you're not married, you want to be married, or you were married, I'm sorry, that is not the aim of that illustration. Apply it in a different relationship. That the depth of of love that can be experienced in a relationship over that long term, it deepens that relationship, right? That's what God intends to happen in our, in our relationships with this idea of knowledge. But here's the challenge. Knowledge is risky. It is risky. Knowledge, can, knowledge in some ways can be a threat to our deep relationship of love. And if you've been married for a while, you know what I mean, right? Because you get to know each other and they're not perfect, they're your spouse. Any relationship that you've been in long enough that you know someone deeply enough, you start to realize, man, they're kind of, they're a mess. They're a wreck. I hope they know how, 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 how lucky they are that I'm stuck around this long with them. 
Now, this can be risky. And by the way, this is what shuts down relationships, right? Yeah, we all long to be fully known and completely loved, but to be fully known feels so risky because we're concerned that if we are fully known, we won't be completely loved. Let's be honest. Sometimes you lay awake at night, you don't even love yourself. You're full of guilt or doubt or regret. But here's, here's the risk of knowledge, right? I mean, Paul warns another church about the destructive, the destructive ability of knowledge alone. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says this, Knowledge puffs up. That's a warning, by the way. But love builds up. So it looks like they're almost contrary ideas there in 1 Corinthians 8. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and he goes on, but then he says this, But have not love, I'm nothing. So what you have here in Philippians 1 is this connection of love with knowledge. And it's done in a way that God intends to be what will deepen our experience of affection as God's people. Paul connects them together. So I I point, point that out because if you pursue knowledge only, that'll be a threat to, to Christian love. If you pursue Christian love without knowledge, you will have a shallow love. You need both. And Paul is praying here for these Christians that their love would abound this way, with knowledge. With knowledge. So, questions for us. Who do you know in this church family so well that you are able to love them in a deeper way because of knowing them like you do? If you don't know others like that, or maybe you're thinking, man, I don't think other people know me like that. Maybe you're thinking that. Like, you're, you don't have those folks in your life. If you're thinking like that, here's, here's my challenge. Here's my invitation. What can you do to change that? What can you do to change that? Number one, again, according to this text, pray. Pray. And I want to make sure we understand that. Okay? We're not here to reverse engineer some sort of Christian experience. Pray. Pray about that. Pray that for your other Christian family members. Pray. Include this prayer this week. Lord, if there are people in this church family that don't have those types of deep relationships, would you start to provide them? And maybe God would use you. God, help me to be an agent to provide that in other people's lives, to get to know people. What steps can you take this week, this holiday season, this next year, if God continues to give us more time to to be partners in the gospel? What steps could you take so that your love could abound at Highlands Baptist Church with knowledge. Here's, here's another practical idea, just something for you to consider. Join a home group. Join a home group. I'd love for you to get involved in a smaller group of Christians who are gathering here on Sunday mornings together, who gather outside of Sunday mornings to know each other and to be known by each other so they can better help each other follow Jesus. That's why we have home groups. I would love, if you're not part of a home group, I'd love for you to talk to me, talk to one of the elders to, be, to understand how you could get involved in a home group. And would you pray about this? Again, I'm going to come back to that because that's the main aim of this text. Chapter, verse 9. It is his prayer that their love would abound more and more with, all, with knowledge and all discernment. Well, that leads us then to the second term, discernment. This term has to do with choosing between things that differ with the idea of choosing between good and best. It's not really, in this context, between bad and good, but really between good and best. Um, In fact, well, I'll I'll get there in a second. Um, Think of knowledge and discernment as partners. 
in relation to our love. You need to know people to love them well, right? But you need to know how then, based on how to use that knowledge to love them well. Discernment serves love by allowing our love to rightly and best express itself in actions and with words that are appropriate and life-giving. Your love for others might prompt you to have the desire to help meet people's needs. In fact, you might grow in knowledge to understand and, and discover those needs that people might have. And you might be thinking, man, I want to help serve those needs. But you may not know how to do that. You need discernment. Discernment gives you the needed direction to act wisely and in ways that promote health and joy and life in those who are loved. Guys, if you're married, have you ever loved your wife in knowledge but without discernment? I'll let you answer that, right? You see how this indispensable discernment could be? Paul wants for this church family to be healthy. He wants their love, but he doesn't want love going off, kind of just, you know, ricocheting rounds, all, you know, wounding people. He wants their love to be done in a way that's knowledgeable and with discernment. And look at verse 10. An abounding love with knowledge and discernment is for this intended outcome, for this purpose of making excellent choices. Do you see it? So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless. So what this text teaches is that when our love abounds with knowledge and discernment, it means we will be able to make the choice not to do things from selfish ambition. Chapter 2, verse 3. It means in verse 10, we'll be able to make and approve what is excellent. It means it will be able, we'll be equipped to make a choice to not care only about our own interests, but to give attention to the interests of others. Chapter 2, verse 4. It means that as we keep making choices like that, What God produces in a church family, in a community of faith, is a people who will be, verse 10, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It sets us apart in a way that makes our love as Christians unique from the love of our counterparts who are not Christian. It's a pure and a blameless love. There there isn't hypocrisy in the love at all. And as we keep making choices like that, what God produces in us is a people who will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, verse 10. Do you see how this keeps flowing? How our love with knowledge and discernment produces in us the ability to make choices that are right to approve what is excellent, which produces in us this feature, this virtue as a people who are blameless and holy, ready for the day of Christ, and all of that. When that happens, eventually, verse 11, we will be a church family that it will be like a community that is like a spiritual orchard. See in verse 11? We'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. We're like the spiritual orchard then, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And all of that is to the praise and glory of God. That is the vision that God has for his church. That is how being partners in the gospel fuels Christian love, which fuels gospel partnership, which fuels Christian love. And so, Christian family, what we should do is be a people of prayer, praying that we would abound in love with knowledge and discernment. How do you know if you're abounding in love with knowledge and discernment. Well, you can give yourself the test of Philippians 1.10. Do you approve what is excellent? Do you? Is your, life, is your life progressively, are we as a church family progressively being marked as a people who are pure and blameless for the day of Christ? Not self-justified, but looking forward to that day of Christ when we will see him face to face. How much of your preoccupation, how much of your daydreams are, are revolving at all around, verse 11, to the glory and praise of God? 
Those are the scriptural tests for our love. And that brings us back to where we started, right? Remember when we started this morning, we reviewed our mission statement? We exist to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. And that's where this all goes to in verse 11. You see at the end, to the glory and praise of God. This is why we exist. All of this matters, church, because it's how we fulfill our purpose in life. Our purpose in life is to live a life that is to the glory and praise of God. That's why we exist. And as we obey this text, we can be assured every day is leading to that ultimate day of Christ. So what I'm trying to describe here is that Paul's vision of the future day of Christ is what gave the present day activity of partnering in the gospel God-sized purpose and meaning. Okay? So you can boil down the smallest, most meaningless, behind-the-scenes actions of love that you would engage in through the week. All right? And now they're suddenly full of God-sized purpose and meaning because all of those actions of love with knowledge and discernment are leading so that you can make choices that are excellent, so that we can be a people who are pure and blameless for the day of Christ, which is all to the glory of God the Father. So what we do today matters. How we live our lives as a church family today matters. Our growing and abounding in love matters. Why? For the day of Christ, for His glory, for His praise. Because one day, when God sees His church and brings it to full maturity, to full completion, really, we're all going to look around and not be like, man, how did this happen? Who, who's, the, who's the star Christian that made this all happen? Well, you know the answer. It's Jesus. Read Revelation. They're all, they're all gathered around and praising who at the end? The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That's who. And that's who we are engaged in today. This vision of that ultimate future day fills every present day with extraordinary purpose, church. Our acts of obedience matter. Our partnership together in the gospel matters because it's some of the fruit of righteousness that is going to bring glory and praise to God. We're filling up the orchard of our, our spiritual orchard, as it were, with these fruits of righteousness as we abound in love, with knowledge, and discernment. So church, this is why we exist. Will you pray about this? Say, so what is one thing that you're supposed to do in a, in a response to this type of sermon, this type of text? I'm always careful about pushing too hard in, in doing because I don't want us to get into the idea that we, we achieve our Christianity through our behavior. But there are requirements for us as Christians, okay? What can we do? Pray. Pray. And then let's trust God that he will produce this in us more and more. Is your love growing cold? Pray. Pray for your church family and be engaged as partners in the gospel.